Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with two-time World Series champ and 1979 Major League MVP, Keith Hernandez. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a man that won 11 gold gloves. He was a National League Most Valuable Player in 1979 and is a two-time World Series champion. Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Hernandez. Keith, thanks for coming on the program. Anytime, Brett. Uh, nice, to, nice to be here with you. What's something we don't know about Keith Hernandez? Something we don't know about me. Gosh, I don't know. God, I think my life's an open book, you know, uh, having played in, in New York and where it's at such a, you know, much more media and your life is more of a, in a, in a fishbowl when you play in New York, particularly uh, the fact that when we, we, we won the World Series in 86, when it was, you know, the last time the Mets had won the World Series, of course, and the only time was in 69. So uh, the Mets have always been kind of the little kid on the block that gets kicked around by the Yankees. And uh, to bring a world championship to New York uh, really just put the spotlight on on, on me, which was uh, something that I liked. I mean, I relished. I, I, I enjoyed my uh, six and a half years in New York. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I, I, I get that. We never got a chance to play together or play against each other. You were going, you were kind of ending your career when I was starting. Right. Um, but and we'll we'll get to some things later. There's some things I really I noticed about your game, and and I really thought was was great from a second baseman's perspective on on my first baseman. A lot of things you did, I I really wanted my first baseman's to do, and and we'll we'll get into that as as we get on with the program. But you're born in San Francisco, yes, Pacific, Pacifica, California. Yes, uh, tell me about. Keith Hernandez as a little kid. I want to hear about your family. I know your pops was a was a minor league p- player. I think your older brother was a was a minor league ball player as well. Yes, and actually, uh, Brett, my dad played in Oklahoma City when he was with Cleveland in the Texas League with your grandfather. Did he really? Yes, he did. I, I know he played with Musial in the Navy. Yeah, he did. But when <laughs> uh, 1947, I believe your dad was uh, in uh, Oklahoma City. And, no gramps, gramps. And, that's right, your gramps. <laughs> and um, uh, so they played together. I remember as a kid, Dad saying that your 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 grandfather was a heck of a player. He liked him very much. Dad got traded to the Cardinals in the middle of that season uh, to uh, the, and he went to Houston, which was in the same league, the Texas League. But um, you know, Pacifica was a you know, my dad served in the war and uh, in the Navy. And uh, when everybody came home after the war, the baby boomers. So uh, it was a little beach town. It was Lindemar Beach, around 17 miles south of San Francisco, in a little beach valley. And it was just loaded with kids. You know, it was all these young parents, and they were building new uh, uh, suburban neighborhoods. And uh, there were so many kids, and the parents were just so wonderful. 
Uh, they organized Little League there. It was already there, but it be, uh, became uh, something really special. My dad was the coach, and uh, Mr. Valero was the manager who was a minor league catcher. So our teams always had great instruction. And, uh, you know, the there was a there was a nunnery up above the hill overlooking where two of the fields were. And there weren't enough fields with the kids because we had run eight. We're able to field eight teams. And, and uh, so uh, the parents went up there, including my dad, and, t- and talked the nuns into allowing them to build two more Little League diamonds. Uh, and, my, and my dad made them like, um, like minor league, you know, where they all centered around the, the middle. And they, so they, and they spread out in a circle. And you were able to have uh, three Little League games going on, you know, at, at, at the same time. And I was very competitive. I mean, I grew up with uh, Bob McClure, who uh, wound up having a good career, very good career with Kansas City and Milwaukee. And I wound up having to face him in that very pivotal pivotal uh, at bat in the seventh game of the World Series in 82 when I was with St. Louis and he was with Milwaukee. And I got a base hit off him uh, that tied the game. In the seventh inning, I believe, or sixth inning, I'm not sure, seventh. And um, we went on to win the seventh game in that World Series. So it was very daunting. I mean, my first World Series, and then I got to face an old guy I grew up with, for crying out loud. I really had to step out of the box there and take a deep breath and really collect myself. I mean, what are the odds of facing a guy you grew up with in in a pressure situation in the seventh game of a World Series? Yeah, it was always interesting for me. You know, I never liked First of all, let alone childhood friends or someone I'd grow up with. I, I never liked being friendly with pitchers. And and I had some, you know, as we play this game a long time, you, you always find your buddies in the clubhouse. You're usually hanging with the position players, but you have some pitchers that are your buddies. But it seems like years later, they're on a different team. and And I hated it. I felt like they always had an edge if we were really good friends when I'd walk to the plate. It's just a smile. So I I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't even want to know they're out there. I don't even want to know who's on the Hill. Uh, I've got one. My, my, my first home run in the minor leagues in a ball was off a little league teammate. And we were on that little league all-star trying to get to Williamsport. And we were the two pitchers and I faced him, uh, I think my second minor league game. And that was kind of surreal, not, not world series surreal, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, uh, go ahead. No, it's okay. Go on. Um, no, no, I was just, I, I was just saying that, that, that was my little off, offshoot to your story. It, it, it's amazing when you, when you grow up with kids and, and then one day you're facing them at it, not only the highest level, but even in the minor leagues college, uh, you know, it was a cool thing at the same time. It was a little, it was a little awkward. Yeah. Well, I always, I'm just the opposite. I had a lot of uh, opposite of you. Um, I really kind of took to the pitchers and I knew they were going to be traded. So I never told them any trade secrets. But I uh, always had good friends uh, that were pitchers. And I think a lot of it had to do with, uh, you know, back in 1973, 74, 75, when I was in AAA. And back then, there were so many ex-major leaguers in AAA trying to get back into the game, guys that I collected their bubblegum cards. And 
I learned so much from those pitchers because they must have saw in me, I was 19 years old uh, when I hit, I hit 350 in American Association and led the league in hitting. And, uh, you know, Dick Selma, the veteran pitcher, uh, he was the first one that pulled me aside. And we were in Denver, I remember, playing the Denver Bears. And uh, it was he just sat next to me. He said, you know, Keith, what do you do when you go up to the plate? You know, I'm 19 years old. I'm looking for a fastball. I'm not thinking. And I just said, Dick, what do you mean? What am I thinking? I just see the ball and hit it. And he goes, well, you know, those pitchers have a plan. And they're trying to get you out. And they're gonna, they've got a strategy to get you out. Uh, they're, they're pitching you a certain way. And it was the first time that I ever thought in terms of the pitcher was offensive too. I always felt we were the offensive guys reacting, but they had that they had a plan. And that's when I first started um, thinking about what that pitcher was doing. And he told me, he said, you know, pay attention to how they're pitching you. And uh, cause that's, though they have a book and they have have a plan and those thoughts never at 19, I was two, two years out of high school. I'm not going to be thinking in terms of that. So that kind of got me on the roll. And then as I got through the big leagues, uh, Larry Durker was with us for the great Larry Durker, who was trying to make a comeback with the Cardinals. And he was the second pitcher that came up to me and uh, he must've saw something in me special. And I was, I was playing pretty good then. I was just starting to get it going, but I hadn't really established myself. But he basically said the same thing and uh, brought it back to my attention. And that's when I started sometimes, um, when I started to start thinking and paying attention to how I was being pitched. Sometimes I think I'd rather not know. And just sometimes I was a better hitter if I was 0-2 and had the bear down. And as opposed to, okay, this guy's been pitching me in, I'm up and I know he's going to lead me off with something inside. And I'm looking in, uh, which I did a lot in my career, particularly in RBI situations. So um, it's all part of the learning process. It's, um, it's like uh, oral history and uh, being passed down from a generation to a next generation. And that's the things you always got to have your ears open and listening to the guys that played the game ahead of you, because you can learn a lot from the veterans. No, I definitely agree with that. And and you mentioned being 19 years old, you know, I go down and, and my son is, he's an A ball right now. And so we'll go down to the cages and, you know, there'll be a bunch of minor league guys, uh, getting ready for this spring training. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty silent. I don't say much, but once in a while, a kid will come up to me, Brett, what do you think about this? And, and I'll, you're right at that, at those ripe ages, 19, 20, 21, uh, I want to get into a deep conversation and teach them what I was practicing at 29, 30, 31. And it's just kind of high level. Like you were talking about the approach, what's he trying to do to me? What's my counterplay to his, but I've always got to be careful. Are they ready for it? Is that 19 or 20 year old ready for it? You know, well, in this situation, I, I got to decide who's on deck. 
And how is that guy on deck done off this pitcher I'm facing? Who's in the bullpen? Is there a base open? Is there not a base open? Am I hot? Am I not? What's my history with them? It's such a, there's so many different variables to go into that approach. And then you take into consideration the pitcher on the mound. Is he smart? Or is he one of those guys that I can eliminate a pitch by hitting something hard, you know? Um, I agree. And also, too, you got to be careful with, you know, the advent uh, of, of analytics. And uh, we did not grow up, at least I didn't, um, and you're not that much younger than me, uh, with computers and databases and all that stuff. With the, and you don't want them to get too dependent on, okay, 2-1 count, this guy throws 65% curveballs on a 2-1 count. I don't, you know, it's, they're too young for that. It just sticks, look fastball, see the ball, hit it. And then as you get older and more experienced, uh, then uh, you can start, you know, blossoming and start thinking, becoming more of a thinking man's, man's hitter. I see a lot of major league hitters today. And I think that analytics, there's a lot of great things in analytics uh, to be uh, gleaned out of, but I think it's, there's a lot of things. I think it's overboard. And I find that a lot of the hitters, I think it's making them guess hitters. They're going up there and they're, they're rolling the dice. It's like you're at the, you know, the uh, craps table and, you know, you're playing a certain number that come maybe comes up 60% of the time. And, um, you know, it just, to me, it's a lot of the strikeouts, a lot of the called strikeouts with, uh, on fastballs with two strikes, um, you know, that, that I got to believe they're looking for a breaking ball or a secondary pitch, unless it's a quality fastball inside, because we're most vulnerable inside with two strikes because we're bearing down and we're going up the middle. And that therefore it makes us more vulnerable in. But I see guys taking fastballs right down the pipe or on the outside corner. I'm just going, well, they got to be looking for a breaking ball there. And that's something I never did. Uh, I never looked for with two strikes. I never looked for a breaking ball. I just I just looked up. I went up the middle and adjusted uh, to the breaking ball. But a lot of guys, you know, can't do that. A lot of guys are not good breaking ball hitters and they have to look breaking ball. I mean, we've all played with a bunch of players. And there's those hitters that can hit anything. And then there's those guys that have to be guest hitters. And um, uh, because they're not a good breaking ball hitter, so they have to look for it and take their chances. Um, and but also to the 220 hitter and the 230 hitter, they're not good hitters. So they're kind of stuck behind the eight ball. So they got to kind of cheat a lot or, or guess a little bit more. But I was never, never, never a guest hitter. And, and I guess, you know, my my philosophy, it, different in some in some realms, same in, in some other facets of it. But a lot a lot for me was was I facing a lefty or a righty? You know, it was a big difference if I had a nasty righty with it with a plus breaking ball. Uh, my approach would be a lot different than I had if, I, if I'm facing, say, a Kenny Rogers who's going to stay away from me, pound me in once in a while. But I felt right-handed. I could hang out over the plate and nothing was going to break away from me. That was a big difference for me, you know, for the right-hander. Um, my approach would would change with who the pitcher was. But 
but yeah, definitely. And this is a, a topic that could go on and on and, right. and, and we, we could talk about it all day. Um, tell me about San Mateo, the college of San Mateo. You went there briefly out of high school. Right. And you ended up signing. And I read this and tell me if I'm wrong. Last pick in the draft. We had Piazza on recently and he's got a similar story about where he went in the draft. Is that true? I know it was the 42nd round. Um, yeah, I was like 500 and something pick. Uh, I quit my senior year uh, in baseball because I my my coach, my manager really shouldn't have been handling kids. I was a three. I was a three sport player, uh, quarterback in football and basketball point guard. And, you know, we came out late. Basketball season ended uh, and I was two, two weeks behind. And I never I played all three sports. I never touched a baseball or swung a bat in the in, 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 not in season. And, and so I was just playing the other two sports. So it took I was number one. My arm wasn't ready. I didn't have my timing and I had to kind of catch up, which I did. Uh, I mean, I mean, I just, I killed uh, high school. I mean, we all did. I'm sure you did too. Um, but uh, I wound up quitting and every scout was in every game. I was going to be a number one draft pick for someone. And I believe the number one pick that year, the team would have been the Padres because it was 1972 and the Padres had just come on the scene. And I think they had the number one pick. Uh, I wound up uh, playing weekends the remainder of the school year. The school went out in June. My dad got me on a semi-pro league uh, over in El Cerrito, which was across the Bay Bridge. Um, and uh, or actually, it was across the Golden Gate. I'm not sure. I think the Bay Bridge doesn't matter. It was a, on a 45-minute hour drive. We only play on weekends. And I was playing against college kids. The kids were in college and uh, guys that were in their 20s. And boy, oh boy, it was, it was real difficult. But I made it through and um, summer came. And um, the Cardinals, I remember when they wound up telling me, uh, Bill Sales was the scouting supervisor. Bob Kennedy was the farm director, Bob Kennedy Sr., uh, who was also a Cleveland Indian outfielder. I think he played with your with your grandfather. And uh, they wound up telling me that they knew Jimmy Johnston was Johnson was the uh, was the the bird dog in the Bay Area. And he saw me and he was following me. And I played Joe DiMaggio uh, baseball, which is the equivalent of Babe Ruth. Um, uh, so and I had a great summer. And when June draft came, they just took I was still available. So they took a chance. They just drafted me. And um, they, I, little did I know they were scouting me all summer long. And then the championship game, I lost one nothing. I pitched in nine innings, extra innings. And um, uh, George Sylvie was there as well as Bob Kennedy and Bill Sales. And after the game, we went home and my dad did negotiating. And I wound up getting a $20,000 signing bonus for a 42nd round. My dad, I had a full ride to Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, uh, to play baseball. And my dad said, look at my son's going to go to college and uh, you got to, it's 20,000 or nothing. My dad wouldn't budge and they wound up giving it to me. And it was so late in the summer that they, thank God they didn't send me to the, those uh, summer leagues in the uh, 
it would have been in uh, down in Sarasota, you know, in the, in the dead of heat and playing day games in those extended spring training leagues. And uh, so they just said, stay home, come in ninth. Uh, that was 71. I was drafted. So come in, uh, just come to spring training in 72. And uh, that's how I got drafted by the Cardinals. And the Cardinals were my favorite team because of my dad's uh relationship with Stan Musial and we he'd Stan would leave us tickets at Candlestick Park when they come in and play the Giants and I was in the clubhouse sitting next to Musial I remember being about eight years old and sitting next to Ken Boyer and so I was always a Cardinals fan so it really was a dream come true to get drafted by the Cardinals. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code BOONE this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Keith Hernandez. You got through the minor leagues pretty quick. And like you had mentioned, you hit 351, you hit 333, another season season in the minor leagues. You make your debut with the Cardinals in 74. And you're coming in, Herzog's at the helm. You got uh, Bob Gibson. In those early days with the Cardinals, it's always it's always cool for me to look back on those guys that that when I was a kid, you know, they were playing. Uh, Ted Teddy Simmons, one of my yeah. favorite, uh, Lou Brock, yeah. and and Joe Torre, who who you ended up replacing, you know, went on yeah. to obvious obvious fame being the Yankee skipper, and one yeah. of my favorites who played with my dad on the Phillies all through the seventies was uh, Shake and Bake McBride. So okay, yeah. that's who you're that's who you're coming up with. Uh, yeah. Tell me about that early day, those early days. You make your debut in in seventy four. Those early days with the Cardinals. Well, it was actually Red Shandies was the manager. And oh, Herzog came later. Okay. Yeah, Herzog came uh, in 19, middle of 1980. Okay. So, 74, I get called up in late August. I'm hitting 353 in AAA. What happened was that uh, Joe Torrey was the first baseman. Uh, they were fighting it out with the Pirates, which we wound up losing the division the last day of the season. And uh, I was 20 years old. I got called up, uh, like, I think the 25th of August. I lost my rookie status because I was called up before September 1st, which was how the rules were back then. Uh, and I, uh, oh, I, I, I was in Oklahoma City. Ken Boyer was my manager in AAA. 
And he called me in his office and I flew to San Francisco where I was born and raised. And I have my debut in the big leagues in front of my mom and dad, my brother, all the family. And just to add on to all the, the pressure and tenseness. And I started because Tori, they didn't want to put Tori on them. There was no uh, 10 day disabled us. There was a 15 and he was basically day to day. So they didn't want to put him on the disabled list. So they called me up. They re- they released Tim McCarver. I took McCarver's spot on the roster. And um, I played all three games in San Francisco. I started. And then we went back home. And then Joe was able to play again. And then um, I wound up hitting 296, I think, with around uh, I don't know how many at bats, 30, 40 at bats, 40, maybe 40 at bats. And I did well. And Red actually, in the heat of that stretch run, started me in a lot of games, um, particularly against a tough right hander. And uh, the next year, uh, they traded Joe to the Mets and opened it up for me in 75. And I struggled. I was, uh, not, I was let me see, 75 to have been 21. And I had a difficult time. I just just didn't get off to a good start. And they red wound up benching me that, and uh, quickly, like two and a half, three weeks into the season in April. And I could never get untracked. And it was a godsend that I got sent back down to Tulsa. And uh, it was very humiliating, but it was the best thing for me. I wasn't ready emotionally. Uh, you know how it is the first time. I, I remember the first time uh, – were the first homestand when we came back from San Francisco in 74. Seavers out there pitching and we're losing three to one. And in, 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 in it's late in the game. And Red comes down and says, Keith, get a bat and a helmet because you're going to pinch hit next, 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 next inning. And um, Alito, I let off the inning. And uh, I remember I, I Okay, I wasn't thinking about Seaver. I I get in the on-deck circle, uh, and I finally get in the box, and I look up, and there's Tom Seaver. I had to step out of the box because, you know, I'm three years out of high school, and I'm facing Tom Seaver. Yeah. (laughs) It's a little little daunting. (laughs) So he threw me a fastball up and in first pitch, and I mean, I don't know how the hell I hit it, but I almost hit a home run. It was a line drive in right center field. And that was an old Bush stadium that was uh, 386 in that gap. And uh, it was the biggest ga- It was the biggest ballpark next to the Astrodome. The Astrodome was two, 396 in the gaps. And I wound up getting a triple and Seaver pitched out of that inning. He left me at third base and he wound up getting a complete game and he beat us three to one. Uh, so that's one experience I'll, I'll never forget. And, um, I wound up hitting, facing Tom a lot over my career. I, I did not hit above 200 against him. So we would always joke about that uh, when we'd see each other. We actually played with each other when I got traded to the Mets. 76, you hit 289. and 77, you seem to start putting it together. You hit 291 with 91 ribbies. Yes. Uh, 78 starts a pretty impressive run. You go 11 straight gold gloves. 
starting in, in 1978. And then we get to 79, which is uh, the best season of your career. You're, you're the all-star, you're an MVP, you're a batting champ. You drive in a hundred, 105 to be exact. How was that nine seventy nine kind of a coming out season for you? Like, all right, I'm here. First all-star game. I remember my first all-star game. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a special, special thing. Uh, you know, to this day, I remember, you know, going to that all-star game and some guys, you know, and they did it in your day too. They wouldn't show up. It's like, Oh no, I, I got something to do. And I'd be like, it, it was the biggest, it was the biggest thing for me in the world. I just sat in that, in that room, my first all-star game. And I'm like, I, I'm here. I, you know, your first goal is to get to the big leagues. And when you get to that all-star game, it's like, wow. And I just, I just uh, let it all sink in that first time. How was that 79 season? Pretty awesome coming out right there. Well, I had the breakout year in actually second half of 76. And uh, I got off to another bad start. I got benched. And then the Phillies ran away with the uh, division that year in 76. That We were like 20 games out of the All-Star break. And Red came to me and said, okay, you're going to start every day the second half. And it was the first time I didn't have to worry about if I went over four, I might not play the next day. And uh, I wound up hitting 333 the second half of that season and drove in almost 50 runs. And that got me going. Then 77, I had the 291 with uh, 15 home runs and the 91 RBIs. And I thought I was on my way. And then 78, I had a good first, a decent first half. And I just had a terrible second half. And I just can't explain why. I think I hit 212 the second half, uh, playing every day. Just a, And I wound up hitting 255. So I go into spring training in 79. Boyer's the manager who had me two years in AAA. And I'm hitting 231 in latter part of April. I hit 231 in April that year, and I wound up hitting 344. And I remember we were flying. We had a uh, we had a ghetto uh, uh, the final game of a series against the Pirates at home day game. We had to fly to Houston after the game. We had an off day, and then we played uh, three games in Houston. And uh, I went uh, four for four or four for five in that final game, and we're flying down to Houston. And Boyer came back in the back of the plane and said, uh, sat down next to me on the arm of my chair. And he said, Keith, uh, I've seen you play. I know you got it. He goes, listen, he goes, just relax. Uh, You're my first baseman. You are my three hitter. I know you got it. I'm going to sink or swim with you. And I know I have the, I know you can do it. You're special. And that to me, uh, I guess I, I maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, I wouldn't took extra BP on the off day. And then Ken Force was pitching in Houston and I went f- uh, four for four against Ken Force. And I never liked hitting in the dome because it was hard to see in the dome it was kind of funky. And I was on my way and I wound up hitting uh, 344 and leading the league and hitting. I hit well in you know, the, the, the the worst month I had from May to the end of through September was 333. And I had a 386 month and I, I just killed it. And a lot of it had to do was that I hit third. I had Ted Simmons hitting behind me, switch hitting 300 hitter from both sides with power clutch hitter. He was proven. I was unproven. So 
if they fell behind me, they were going to come after me. What am I going to do? Am I going to am I going to let Ted Simmons beat me or is Keith Hernandez going to beat me? Well, the obvious question answer to that question was me. And so I got ahead in the count or it was a tight situation. I was getting a lot of fastballs. Now, plus I had Lou Brock and Gary Templeton hit in front of me. I stole a bunch of bases and uh, speed. So I was seeing a lot of fastballs, particularly against left-handers. And left-handers would come after me if they fell behind because they didn't want any part of Simmons. So that was the best protection I ever had. But that put me on my way. And then the next year, I lost the batting title in 80, the last day to Bill Buckner by, by a point and a half or two points. We went into the last day of the season, and I still had Teddy hitting behind me. And they started to respect me, though, but I was on my way. It just took me a while to get going. So that 79 year, I was 25. And it was my fifth year in the big leagues. 80, you hit 321. 81, you hit 306. Mm-hmm. Then we get to 82, and you're kind of starting to starting to uh, change over. You know, we, we, we opened up with, you know, Teddy Simmons and – and uh, Lou Brock. And, and and now it's kind of a new cast of characters. You got Willie McGee and Ozzie yeah. Smith, who we had the program. It, it was interesting. We had uh, on the program recently, Kitty Cott. He yeah. was a part of that 82 team. Yes, he was. And, and uh, congratulations to Jim getting in the Hall of Fame. You well deserves. Pretty awesome. You had Tommy Hur at second base, Bruce Souter, the great closer, skates. You had Lonnie Smith, who had come over from the Phillies. Uh, take me through that 82 season. You end up win, uh, winning the World Series against the Brewers. Your right. first World Series championship. You had a great World Series. You drew, You had eight ribbies, I think, in that World Series. I did. Um, I actually started uh, 0 for 15 in that World Series. I was a little tight. And uh, – uh, I remember a game, uh, I was 0 for 12 for the first three games, and I was really, really going, oh, my God. And I was just tight as a board. And then in the uh, fourth game in Milwaukee, I hit uh, I hit four bullets right at people, and I knew I was on my way. I was 0 for 4, or, uh, but um, I knew I was on my way. And then I had, I finished uh, seven for 11 with eight RBIs and I had a home run off Don Sutton in game six. Uh, we wound up winning the world series. Um, that was a unique team. It was a team built on, on speed defense because the St. Louis was so large and had AstroTurf and we couldn't have a bunch of bash brothers in there. The, the ballpark was, was huge. So when Whitey came over, he basically, he did a lot of things. He traded Ted Simmons. I mean, he traded the Brewers. He made McGee. We wound up playing them. Traded Pete Vukovic, who in 82 won the American League Cy Young. He traded Ted Simmons uh, and Raleigh Fingers. And we had Suter. And uh, we he brought in, traded for Ozzie Smith. We got Lonnie Smith. We got Willie McGee very f- luckily on a just a steal of a trade from the Yankees. He was in the minor leagues. And we just had so much speed and defense and good pitching. And really, Whitey was a terrific manager on the field. Uh, he never, no one ever outmanaged him. And uh, he had a lot to do with our success. 83 comes along after the World Series champion. Mid-season, get traded to the Mets. Yes. Now you're coming up as a kid in that Cardinals organization. You know nothing other than 
then you're a St. Louis Cardinal. You're you're coming off. You got your first ring. Talk about that trade. Well, I tell you what, um, I had attained everything in baseball on a personal level. I had won a batting title. I won Gold Glove. Won an MVP, Silver Slugger. Uh, I'd never won. Uh, the World Series. So that was the last hurdle, the last accomplishment. And that's a team accomplishment. And after 82, I just was kind of searching for some motivation. I was a little bit, um, I don't know. I, I, I just was, it was a tough year for me. And I know I would have, I would have come out of it. Obviously I did. But uh, Whitey traded me uh, to the Mets, and the Mets were at that point. They traded Tom Seaver in 77, and from that point on, the Mets were always a last-place team. Uh, when I joined them, there was from 77 to uh, 82 that they were a last-place team, never in it. So I'm traded from a first-place team at that time, the defending world champion, to uh, a last a perennial last-place team. And... Um, and to even make poor salt on the wound, I had to join the team in Montreal. And I never liked Montreal. Number one had a great pitching staff and uh, number two, an state Olympique. Um, the seats were green and yellow and the lights were a yellow tint. And I never really saw the ball well there. If I went into Montreal, either I had a horrible series or I had a lights out series. There was no in between. And uh, we had already played two of the three series that are scheduled in the course of the season in division. We had, the Cardinals already played two against Montreal. So the Mets had only played one. So I had to play four series in state Olympic in Montreal. Uh, it was a very unsettling year when you get traded midseason, you get uprooted. Uh, you know, the first trade always hurts the worst. You know, you feel a loyalty. And I had been a, a Cardinal fan my whole life. And, um, you know, it hurt. Uh, but, you know, but life goes on. What are you going to do? And um, it turned out to be uh, a blessing. Yeah, that 83 team, still, you hit 306. Um, yeah, I didn't have a good year. I hit 306, but I was, I was, I, I, it wasn't a good year. For me, I, I, I didn't drive in that many runs. It was it, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for me. 84, you guys finished in second. And, and I think that's when Davey came in and we had Davey and he had a lot to say about that. Those Mets years. Yes. And, and what a cast of characters you guys had. 84, you hit 311, 85, 309. And that gets us to 86 and what's going to be your second ring. And people don't talk about it that much, but the, the, the real struggle before you met the uh, met up with the Red Sox in the World Series was that Astro series. That yeah. was a great series. And for you guys to get to the World Series, everybody knows the World Series. And, yeah, the ball goes through Buckner's legs and, and the rest is history, which was game six, by the way. That wasn't the end, which everybody thinks it's the end. But uh, take me through that 86 year. Give me a snapshot of that and that Astro series, which was was pretty awesome just to get to the World Series. Well, um, we uh, started in April. We had a first homestand. We were like 500, and the press is clamoring. And uh, Davey had predicted in spring training that we would not only win the National League, but we would dominate. 
And uh, he threw that challenge at us. And we went on the road in St. Louis, played four-game series in St. Louis, first, uh, second week of the season. We swept them four straight in St. Louis. And then we were on our way. That was such a cough. We knew we were good, but that was our competition. Uh, the Cardinals, they were a good team. And um, the, the year before in 85, we won 98 games. They won 102. We went home. And so that was our competition going into 86. And for us to go in there and sweep them on the road, it's hard to take three games on a road, but to take a four-game series against a good team in their ballpark is not easy. And we were on our way. St. Louis never recovered from that four-game loss. They were a non-entity. Well, actually, no one was in it. We, we, we won it by over 20 games. But we just killed everybody. We won uh, – one of the remarkable things, uh, Brett, is that we won 54 games at home and 54 games on the road. But we also knew going into playoffs uh, that the Astros were going to be a tough mark. They had Nolan Ryan, Mike Scott, who was the Cy Young Award winner that was just, he beat us, I think, twice um, that year. And uh, Bob Nepper, a tough left-hander. And um, we knew we had our hands full and uh, we lost the first game, one nothing, and we came back and we got Ryan early in game two. We had to win game two in Houston. Couldn't go home down two love. And we beat, we got, we got five runs early on Nolan. I mean, Nolan, you got to, all the great pitchers, you got to get them early. And uh, that series was uh, every game outside of game two, we had to come back to win. So I think it showed our character because we never were really, you know, tested in the course of the season. We never looked back. I mean, there was no one in the rearview mirror from 1st of May to the for five months, May to the May to through September. We just we, we just left everybody in the dust. So we showed our medal. We beat them in six. Uh, then we go against Boston and Boston. Let me tell you, Boston was a good team, a good lineup. Another Cy Young and Clemens. And Bruce Hurst, tough left-hander. But their pitching wasn't as deep as ours. And in being in the American League with a designated hitter, there's not that much um, of an onus to have a good bullpen because you can stick with your, your pitcher longer. You know that. You played in the American League. Uh, your pitcher can be losing 2-0 in the seventh, and the National League got a pinch hit for him. In the American League, you can leave men. So... Um, their bullpen, I thought, was decent, uh, but didn't have the depth. And their starting rotation certainly didn't have the depth. You know, and we fell back two games to love. We lost the first game, well, I think one nothing. Uh, Hurst outdueled Darling. We lost on an air in the ninth, eighth inning or ninth inning. I'm not sure. And uh, then we got killed in game two. And then we went in there and took two out of three in Fenway. And, um, you know, everybody talks about game six and the ball through Buckner's legs, but everybody thinks the game was over. It wasn't over. The game was tied. That won the game. That game would have, would have continued. And I think with our bullpen compared to theirs, we would have won that game. And then, of course, game seven, we came from behind again. So I think we really showed our character uh, in that postseason. 
It was so much fun. Uh, that game six in Houston that went 16 innings was the greatest game I ever played because every time we went out there for defense, it was their bottom half of the order in extra innings. They score a run, we lose. And Mike Scott's going to pitch game seven against us. I still, to this day, think we would have found a way to beat him. But it wouldn't have been easy. We would have needed a really, really good uh, uh, pitching performance uh, from our starter that day. So uh, that night. Uh, but anyway, it uh, was a remarkable series. Uh, I was very fortunate to play in two. And then to win in New York, uh, and particularly um, at the Mets. Now, Yankees, you know, the Yankees have won so many times. The Mets, it was just euphoric. The city was euphoric. It was an unbelievable experience. And I and I played uh, I played for Davey a few years with with the Cincinnati Reds in the mid nineties and and I know what you're talking about Davey putting it out there early he was a very unique guy actually he's a second baseman I was a second baseman I was a young player we butted heads for the, for my years with him years down the road we see each other very friendly and I realized what he was doing he was re he really pushed my buttons how was your relationship and how great of a fit was Davey Johnson for that particular crew you guys had in New York well Davey was a players manager and uh, he always just said don't embarrass the club don't embarrass me come to the ballpark on time ready to play and you'll never hear a peep from me if you're not ready to play, you'll hear from me. And uh, I think the big thing about Davey, which was the good choice, was that we had all those young players. When the Mets were getting those number one draft picks, uh, when they were finishing in last place, they weren't squandering those draft picks. It was Daryl Strawberry, it was Dwight Gooden, it was Lenny Dykstra, it was Wally Backman, Kevin Mitchell. Um, they uh, drafted well and it was a rebuilding process under Frank Cashin, the general manager. And uh, Frank Cashin, I remember, uh, told me, he told uh, Fred Wilpon and Nelson Dubway, the owners, when they wanted to hire him for GM in 78, I think he came in, I'm not sure. Maybe, uh, I think it was 78 when they bought the club. He said, okay, I'll take the job, but you cannot expect overnight success. I need time to build from the minor leagues and get the talent and eventually build a championship. And so when I came to spring training in 84, um, Davies uh, first year as manager, he had already managed uh, in the minor leagues. He had managed doc. He had managed Daryl, Len Dykstra, Wally Backman, all those guys. He knew like Ken Boyer knew me because he managed me in the minor leagues. If it had been someone outside the organization that didn't know me from Adam, you know, he may, I may not have had the opportunity. And so he knew about the, all this young talent because he managed them and we rolled with it. And that talent was uh, that good. I mean, I noticed it two weeks into spring training in 84 it was my first full season. And, uh, after two weeks of spring training, I said, holy cow, they got, we got some, we got, they were all 21, 22. I was 30 and they had, they were so eager and, and so full of energy that it was a shot in the arm for me to be around all that positive energy. And uh, really, uh, I think uh, helped me in the second half of my career. Yeah. It, that seemed like a fun bunch. Where were you? 
Where were you when uh, when the ball went through Buckner's legs? I know. I think you make the second out of the. I inning. did make the second out. We were uh, one, we were nobody on base, one out from elimination, and I went up into the clubhouse because I didn't want to see um, them you know, celebrate territorial. Yeah. I didn't want to see them on our field. Right. And uh, lo and behold, Gary gets the ball rolling with a base hit. Kevin Mitchell comes off the base, uh, off the bench and gets a pinch hit, base hit. Ray Knight gets a hit. Um, I mean, it's the most incredible, I think, the greatest two-out game seven, ninth-inning comeback in the history of the World Series. Uh, and um, so I was sitting up there with Jay Horowitz, who was the PR director, and uh, Daryl Johnson, ironically, was our advanced scout. And he was the manager of the Red Sox when they lost the World Series uh, to the Reds, I believe, uh, back in the 70s. And we were sitting there watching and kind of just going, God darn it, 108 wins. And it's just all going to go down the toilet. And then all of a sudden, boom, boom, boom. And I'm going, I'm ready to go back down the bench. And I just said to Daryl and Jay, I said, you know what? You know, we're superstitious, Brett, right? Yeah, stay I where said, you are. <laughs> I said, I got this this seat I'm sitting in. has got hits in it. I'm, and remember, we make it out. It's over. And I said, I'm not leaving this chair. So I watched in Davey's office with Daryl Johnson and Jay. And I'm in the middle of that. I forgot. I just was talking with Jay the other day, uh, Horowitz. Um, he went to get up to get a a glass of water or a bottle of water. And I said, I wouldn't let him get up. I said, no, don't you get up. You stay right there. So we all three watched and uh, the greatest uh, two out comeback in world series history. I couldn't imagine. I mean, how cool that would be, especially, you know, cause we've all, I, I've done that a million times, you know, I make the second out. It's like, Oh, and, and it looks like it's virtually impossible for us to win. And all of a sudden you're just sitting up there and it, uh, something happens. And then wait a minute, Mitch coming off the bench, Mitch gets a knock. Now, Ray, I, I forget Ray's knock, but it might have been a squibber somewhere. No, no, it was a line line drive up the middle. Oh, up the middle. Okay, he, Ray. He, he, he two-strike fastball was in, and then he he muscled out up the middle. So um, he gets the knock, then the pass ball. And you got at this point, I, I couldn't imagine when the ball went through Buckner's legs. And as much as, you know, well, not you at the time, but as a player being in that spot, there, there's a certain amount of compassion we have, probably not in the moment when you're playing for the Mets, but to just think we just won that son of a bitch. And yeah. not only that is we got to play tomorrow, but it's almost like for us to come back and win that game, there's no way you're losing the next day. Uh, yes. And we were behind and uh, wound up. Came back. back. Hearst, Hearst was going to pitch on two days rest and it rained. I mean, it poured, and they called the game in the afternoon early. We, I, I didn't even go to the ballpark. They called us at home and said, game's called. So it gave Hurst a third day of rest. And I think, you know, we, he pitched a great game through six, and I think he just got tired. And I, and I feel that their bullpen, I don't think Mac, John McNamara, the manager, trusted their bullpen and he hung in there with them, and I got the big hit that tied the game off of Hurst, and then they that 
they, that got him. The, that was the last batter he faced. I knocked him out. It tied the game. Uh, and then uh, they, they, I forget who the hell they brought in. Doesn't matter. <clears throat> I was, I was Nipper, I believe. I'm not sure. And uh, we wound up uh, taking the lead and then we added on and we had our, our world championship. Parade, New York. <coughs> Got to be pretty unbelievable. I, I, in New York, I, that I city. Couldn't, I, I couldn't pay for a dinner for a month in Manhattan. I, I couldn't pay for a dinner. It was all, didn't matter if I had, if it was me or me and a friend or me with six people, I couldn't pay for a meal for a month. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Between the two, St. Louis, New York, equally, equally cool. Yes. Um, because St. Louis was the first one and they hadn't won since 67 uh, with uh, Lou Brock and Gibson and McCarver, who I took his spot in the roster. Uh, so 67, we win in 82. That's quite a long time. That's 15 years. And it's the Cardinals, my first world series. Uh, it was very special. Uh, and then New York was Every bit is special, too. It was gratifying for me, I must say, because I was traded there. And uh, I really feel that the feeling was they were trading me there on purpose, like trading me to Siberia. And um, I had my difficulties uh, with Whitey, although those are all in the past. And, and that's long gone. We patched up. But I did feel that he uh, traded me there to, to bury me there. And then to uh, within, geez, three years, win a World Series. The Mets, are you kidding? It was great. It, oh, man, it was awesome. That, that, that is really cool. I always wanted to, I always used to think about it when I was playing it. You know, as a player, you're in the moment and you don't, when you're in your heyday, when you're in your prime, you don't think about where you're going to play. You're playing where you're playing. But I always thought before it was all said and done, I want to play in New York because I loved going there. I mean, I, whether it was New York and, and Mets, I didn't hit so well at, at, at Shea Stadium, loved hitting at Yankee Stadium, but I was going to New York. It's just kind of a different world. It's a different animal. And, and walking down the street, you know, staying at that Grand Hyatt by Grand Central Station and walking out for a coffee in the morning, I'm going to have Mets, or depending on who I'm playing that night, I'm going to have Mets fan or Yankee fan yelling at me from the other side of the street, how they're going to kick my ass. And I, and, and I just love that part of being in New York. And I thought one day I want, I want to play there before it's all said. It never got to happen, but it, New York, it's a special place. You know, it's a special place. No question about it. They got rabid fans there, boy. They really do. 87, you hit 290, 276. 90, you end up finishing your career in Cleveland. Uh, right. And you retire after that year. You ready to retire? Do you know, do you, know uh, you were done playing? Yeah, I in in uh, 1989, my last year with the the Mets, uh, I was playing the Dodgers, and it was early in the season, May, and a double weak ground ball to second base, and Dave Anderson, all 160 pounds of him, comes in to tag me to get then then throw to first, get the double play. Well, 
as a base runner, only you have to knock that second baseman on his keister so he can't complete the double play. And I was very good at that. The only thing you can't do is you can't, you got to be like the old fashioned offensive lineman. You have to grab your jersey. You couldn't use your hands. So I knocked him into the next county because I outweighed him so much and I was running. I had the momentum and uh, he was coming in to tag and our knees knocked and I broke my patella, a clean break, clean horizontal break. And that I missed eight, I missed eight weeks uh, with the bone to heal. And then a week and um, so nine weeks total and re- one week in rehab. And it was August. And, uh, you know, when you have a leg injury, you can't run. If you have an upper body injury, you can still run and stay in shape. When you have a lower half injury and you can't run, um, there's just no way that you're I was 36. And so I wasn't a spring chicken anymore. And it was hot. And I remember just being after five innings, I was exhausted. And I really had to focus on my first two at bats because I was just I was I was tired, uh, just worn out in the heat. And um, it was not a good second half, but uh, uh, it was not a good year. And the Mets let me go and they made the right choice. I thought I can still play. We all think we can still play. I go to Cleveland and um, I wound up. It was my uh, right patella. So I go to Cleveland and I tear my left calf. So probably unconsciously favoring that knee and overloading the other side. And that calf was a son of a gun. And they kept bringing me back. They brought me back too early. I did it again. There's six weeks. And then they brought me back again. I did it again. And it was just, I only had 110 at bats. Um, I had another year in my contract. Um, they weren't going to release me and pay me. And uh, so <clears throat> the kids, my kids were coming to St. Louis, uh, New York for Christmas was my time for Christmas. And I'm adjusting the furniture, set everything up, the Christmas tree. And I had a sectional couch and I would set it up so they could sleep in the living room and watch TV. And I, you know, I woke up in the next morning and I went to get out of bed and my back just went out. So I had uh, back surgery and I missed all of 91. And I just said, you know, I, my body's telling me it's over. So I, 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 I just retired. Hit 307 times MVP, 11 gold gloves, a batting title and two rigs. I say that was pretty good work. Pretty good work. How'd you get the C on your jersey? Uh, that was Charlie Samuels, who was our uh, clubhouse man. And uh, he was a hockey fan as well. And it was his idea. I wish I'd never done it. I thought it was, I thought it was kind of ostentatious, too. It was a big C <clears throat> on my chest. And I just thought I, I should have said no. And um, But uh, Davey made me captain, a first captain in Met history. And I remember, uh, I forget... It was 86, as a matter of fact, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But I remember he held a meeting, and I had no idea he was going to. And, and he, so he was talking about whatever he was talking about. And then he said, oh, and by the way, uh, 
I'm naming a captain on this team, and Keith, you're the captain on this team, and I thought, well, holy cow. <clears throat> so it was quite an honor. So I was, I was the first captain in Mets history. And uh, I, 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 just another another nice thing that happened to me in the course of my 17 years in the big leagues. It's funny you say that it, you felt a little ostentatious, but it, for the rest of us on the team, though, it, it is kind of an honor. It's like, it well, well, he didn't ask for the C. They gave it to him because I remember in Cincinnati and I don't know whether Dave, Davey might have been behind that, too. He gave he made Larkin the captain. And okay. Lark was my double play partner. And I would tease him every day. I said, Lark, what's up with the C on your uni? This ain't hockey, man. Right. And, he, and he would give me that kind of that goofy smile. Like he was some kind, he was a little bit embarrassed, but at the same time, pretty cool that he's the only one that's ever been named a captain. So it's kind of a catch 22. But if you're the guy getting the award, I think it's pretty cool. Like, yeah, I, I, hey, I didn't name myself this, but it's kind of cool that they gave it to me. Yeah, you know, and a captain on a baseball team is not like a captain on a hockey team. Uh, it's more there's more importance for having a, a the hockey team to have a captain, and uh, I think football. Uh, but still, uh, captain means it's a high honor. It means that you are, you know, there's a responsibility that goes with it, and it's always you know it's always going to be a veteran player. It's not going to be a young player. So you got to earn your your stripes, so to speak. And this is what I wanted to talk to you about that I thought so cool. Bunt situation. Because for years, and I had some pretty darn good first baseman. I had Hal Morris for a long time over in Cincinnati. I had Johnny Olerud, who caught everything, you know, thrown his way. But the one thing I like to do, and especially on the turf, I'd like to really put the pressure on that guy bunting the ball. Because usually it's the pitcher in the National League right. or, or a lesser hitter. I said, and I would try to convince my first baseman, listen, we want them to swing. They're, you want to put so much pressure on them. They don't want it. They're, pro, they're not going to make contact if they swing anyway. I just don't want them getting the bunt down. If they do, I want you getting the out at the, at the advanced base. And I had the toughest time with my first baseman getting them to get in that guy's face. Sometimes I'd come running in from second base and act like the first baseman because I wanted to, to really disrupt that bunting situation. If it was a big situation, I didn't want him to get it down. I noticed in, in preparing for this, you were really big on really getting in that guy's face. I think it's such an advantage. Um, what was your thought for us? process behind that same as I'm explaining right now? Well, yeah, certainly. A lot of pitchers weren't good bunners, so put the pressure on them. Uh, also, too, I always felt if we didn't get the lead runner, we failed. And um, so I always had a play where I would get a good jump. I would go when I was holding a runner on, I would go to the pitcher and tell them, give them three sequences, three pitches. I'd say, throw over, throw over, go home, or go home. And if the guy uh, fouled it off or it was a ball, we still had, okay, you're going you're gonna to throw home, you're going to come over, whatever the three sequence was. So with a right-hander on the mound, he would come set. He'd look uh, over out of the corner of his eye at me. And when I broke home, that's when he would break out and start to throw home. So I got a good 
two steps and momentum going forward. With a left-hander, it was uh, as soon as the left-hander, I gave him the same. If I knew he was going home on the three sequence, as soon as he lifted his foot off up, I was gone. So I was able to get a big jump. I learned that from the Cardinals, and we had that. And that was uh, George Kissel, who was our uh, our Mr. Fundamentals uh, from the minor leagues. And um, so that was all part of the Cardinal way, and I brought that with me to the Mets. So that always gave me a, a good jump on the bunt, and I charged aggressively. And if I was first and second where I had to hold, didn't have to hold a runner on, then I really – uh, just really got down their throat and made them really f- feel me and see me right there. Put the pressure on them to have to put the ball down the third base line uh, or else. And a lot of times it was just too much pressure for them. The bad bunners, they would, they they get the shakes. They couldn't get it done. I think it's so awesome. And, and it's, it used to frustrate the crap out of me because I think, why don't more first basemen do that? It's not like it's an overly skilled play. Just get in their face. What, what are you worried about? It used to drive me crazy, but I love, you know, I loved having a first baseman that would, that would really get in there like that. I thought that was interesting. Uh, 98 to present. You've been in that Mets uh, broadcasting booth a long time. Is that something that just happened or something uh, during the end of your career, you thought about life after your, your playing days? Uh, I didn't watch my, my career ended not the way I wanted it to with injury. I didn't watch a baseball game after I retired uh, after the 91 season. I didn't watch a game until uh, whatever year, I think it was 97 with the home run chase with uh, Sosa and McGuire. And I didn't start watching until the second half when it started heating up and I just didn't click. Uh, and I played against the Barry and I, uh, I've been, uh, and I never played against McGuire and I not Barry. I'm sorry, Sammy. And um, it just didn't strike me. Uh, uh, it's funny how I was watching them and Sammy was so large. It just didn't click. <laughs> and um, but that's what got me watching baseball again. And uh, so from that, that's six years I didn't watch the game. And uh, I was perfectly fine with it. I just had to get away from it. And then uh, no, I was in a, a Lane's restaurant uptown, East, Upper East Side, and a, a, my young agent, a young agent came in who wound up being my first agent. And he said, I, you should be doing Met games. You should be broadcasting. I said, no, I don't want to do that. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, listen, can I take your number and can I call you periodically and maybe you'll change your mind? And by, by golly, he did kept call me like once every during the season or all, even in the off season around every three months. And finally, I think in 98 or 99, I said, uh, okay, go ahead. And he went and pitched it to the Mets. And that's how it started. I started doing 15 games. I never figured it would be what it is now <clears throat> when the Mets in 06 started their, their new network uh, SNY and they needed, they wanted a set team. So that's when it started, uh, really full time. I'm doing 110 games, and here we are. It'll be our 17th year in the booth together. Gary Cohn, play-by-play, Ron Darling, and me. Never would have dreamed it. Difference between Mets fans and Yankee fans. <laughs> Difference? Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I'll say something interesting. They know the demographic of um, of who, how they watch TV, how they watch the game. And this I found interesting. Um, Met fans tend to come in in the third and fourth inning and they stay to the end unless it's a huge blowout. Yankee fans, this is very, it's very cool. Yankee fans watch the pregame show and watch in the beginning and they filter and they, and they, as the game progresses, they go away. Not all of them, but they lose the viewership and particularly if it's a blowout game. So there's a big difference right there, which I just find very interesting. And I think it's kind of scary that they know our, our viewing habits, to be honest with you. Big year for you. Uh, Cardinal Hall of Fame 2021. Pretty awesome Hall of Fame, that that Cardinals. It's right up there with the kind of that Yankee Hall of Fame that Cincinnati Reds got a really uh, a yeah. really cool one. But that Cardinal Hall of Fame, pretty awesome. You went into the Mets Hall of Fame in 19, uh, 1997, but we were talking off camera earlier. And uh, this is uh, for me, the July 9th for you this coming season. Pretty awesome. You're getting your number retired. Uh I, I always with the guys we we have on the show, I, I think it's just a real special thing. It's just to be said, they'll no one will ever wear my number again for the New York Mets and the New York Mets being such an iconic franchise. That's pretty high honor uh, when you got the call. Uh, catch you off guard. Oh, of course. I didn't expect it. Uh, the new owner, Steve Cohn, called me and informed me. I was shocked and uh just overjoyed. I mean, I'm, I'm the sixth person. The, Met, the Mets don't have a lot of retired numbers. Uh, it's Casey Stingle, the first manager of the Mets. It's Gil Hodges, the manager of the 69 Mets. And the first uh, player, of course, was Tom Seaver. So the second player was uh, Mike Piazza. And then the last year they retired Jerry Kuzman's uh, number and now me. So there's six of us up there. And, you know, uh, the number will be up there in the, uh, down the left field line. They call it the rafters. And, that, you know, th that number will be there forever when I'm long gone. And um, no one will ever wear the number. But it's going to be a very prideful thing when I, I'm going to continue to work there. I'm going to look up there and see my number. And uh, it's just a... Uh, a great honor. And, um, I just couldn't be more thrilled. Coolest thing short of a statue, short yeah. of a statue. Uh, all right. I'm not letting you get out of here. I got to bring it up. I'm sure it's the first time you've been asked about it. Love the show. Still love the show. How'd Seinfeld come about? Did Jerry call you? Uh, no, actually Scott Boris was, is a family friend. Scott Boris played minor league ball in the Cardinal chain and was my roommate with my brother. So he's always been a part of our family. He was my last agent. Uh, they Seinfeld called Scott and I was two years into retirement. So I didn't, Scott really wasn't my agent anymore. And he didn't have to negotiate a contract. And Scott called me and I don't watch primetime TV. We play night games, you know, when primetime's on, we're playing. And I still don't watch primetime. And um, I just, I didn't know about the show. And I said, well, what is it? And he goes, it's a sitcom. And I said, oh, well, he goes, I go, how much are they going to pay? And he goes, I'll pay you $15,000. I'll fly you to LA for a week, put you up at a nice hotel and a suite. And 
you have minimal lines, fly first class. I said, okay, I'll do it. And um, boy, oh boy, I, they FedExed the script to me and I realized that I did not have minimal lines. I was actually the guest star and I had a lot of responsibility uh, <laughs> to memorize those lines. I had never done any acting, never aspired to be an actor. And uh, I wound up calling, I met Marsha Mason, the actress, uh, in my days in New York. And I called Marsha and I said, Marsha, I got, I'm in over my head here. So she gave me some tips how to memorize lines. And I did memorize my lines and I got through it. And it was just a great experience. And it ends up, not only is it just a guest spot, it's, it's one of the best episodes. I think it was a two-part episode. It was, what, actually, it, it was an hour episode. <laughs> they show it in two hour, uh, two episodes now, but it, they use it on Sweeps Week, which was, was for all the advertisers. So it's the beginning of the, it was actually the beginning of the second season, I believe. And they, Larry David told me that they really loved the script and it all hinged on me if I was going to be a stiff uh, it was going to be a half hour show. If I was acceptable and did a good halfway decent job, they added the an extra uh, element to it, which was George <clears throat> going for unemployment. And that made it an hour episode, which they used on sweeps. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. What are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? Two World Series. It's always team. You know that. And the individual stuff's great. I mean, I'm, uh, I had, I've accomplished so many things in my career that I never dreamed of. I mean, an MVP and a batting title. Um, but to me, two world championships, very fortunate. A lot of guys look at Ernie Banks, Ernie, the great Ernie Banks, never got to a World Series. I got the two, and I won two. Uh, I'm I'm most proud of that. Keith Hernandez, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. And uh, each and every Boone Podcast at the end, we kick it back to Dan Levy. Dan? All right. Well, that is going to do it for this year, Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Boone Podcast. EP executive producer, Rich Herrera. Digital stuff that gets handled by Liz Landry. Thanks, Liz. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five a five, and while you're at it, give it a five star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. If you want to ask the Booner a question, do so at the Moon Twenty Nine on on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. He can be found in all those places. You can also find me on all those social media areas at Bass on Air, B A S S on Air. And for all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Booner, flip the bat, turn the lights off. Let's roll.